This podcast was made possible by the generous support of our Patreon patrons. They provide us with the resources we need to produce each episode. You can join them at 90milesfromneedles.com slash Patreon. Hey, this is Chris. Thanks for tuning in. We're really grateful for the wonderful comments we've gotten on our inaugural episode, and we're going to be putting some of the ideas that you've sent along to use in episodes to come. In today's episode, we learn about a small toad that's restricted to one valley in central Nevada. It was only discovered as a distinct species in 2017, and yet it's in danger of going extinct due to a corporation that wants to build a giant geothermal plant. We'll be talking to Patrick Donnelly from the Center for Biological Diversity, who is suing to prevent that from happening, and we'll tell you how you can help. This episode will be a little bit shorter than the last one. We plan to alternate longer and shorter episodes until we get our production sequence under our feet. We hope you like what you hear. In the meantime, get vaccinated, get boosted, and wear a mask. We need you around. The sun is a giant blowtorch aimed at your face. There ain't no shade nowhere. Let's hope you brought enough water. It's time for 90 Miles from Needles, the Desert Protection Podcast with your hosts, Chris Clark and Alicia Pike. Welcome to 90 Miles from Needles. I'm Chris Clark. And I'm Alicia Pike. One of the things that I like about the desert is that it's an engine for evolution of really interesting species. About five years ago, when I was still working at KCET Television in Los Angeles, a friend of mine gave me a heads up that there was a newly discovered species of toad that lived only in one valley in a relatively remote section of west central Nevada that was being threatened by development. That friend is here with us now. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hello. I'm uh, Patrick Donnelly. I'm Great Basin Director at the Center for Biological Diversity, and I live in beautiful Shoshone, California, on the edge of Death Valley. And full disclosure, Patrick and I are both members of the Board of Directors of a group called the Amargosa Conservancy. Tell us a little bit about the Dixie Valley Toad. How did you get involved with the fate of the toad? There have always been known to be isolated populations of toads at various springs across the Great Basin. And in particular, they thrive at hot springs. Uh, the Great Basin, of course, is a very cold desert, um, but the hot springs create ice-free surface water uh, throughout the winter, allowing amphibians to persist. And a professor at the University of Nevada, Reno, and uh, two graduate students began looking at some of these toads. And uh, in 2017, they described one of them as a new species, the Dixie. Valley toad, Anaxyrus Williamsi, which was never before described. Uh, it was broken off of the Western toad complex, which is a, a relatively widespread species of toad. And the Dixie Valley toad is really interesting. When we think about these Great Basin endemic aquatic species, you know, usually the, the story is, well, 10,000 years ago, this was all a big interconnected system of lakes and rivers, and they were all 
interconnected populations, the waters receded and these species isolated and became unique taxa. Um, and that's true for the Dixie Valley toad. However, uh, the Dixie Valley is hydrographically extremely isolated from the broader area. The last time the Dixie Valley had interconnectivity was 650,000 years ago. So the Dixie Valley toad is an ancient species uh, compared to many other Great Basin endemics. So pretty unique in terms of how deviated it is from its uh, Western toad brethren. And uh, right when the professor at UNR ID'd the species, he called us and he said, you got to help, our toad's in danger. And uh, there was a proposal for a geothermal power plant to be built right next to the habitat for this toad, the only global habitat. And he called us and we got involved. Just a couple weeks later, I went out there to Fallon and went out to Dixie Meadows Hot Springs. It's a series of springs that grow along a fault escarpment along about a two-mile area. Uh, there's dozens or even hundreds of spring vents along this escarpment, and it creates a wetland uh, where the springs flow out into the valley bottom. The first day, we went out with some Nevada Department of Wildlife biologists, and it was the middle of the day. It was pretty hot, and uh, there actually happened to be a couple toads out then. They don't prefer that time of day. And so we saw a couple, and it was, oh, cool, there's the toad. That's neat. Um, but I wanted to get some photographs and kind of have a different look at things. So I went back out the next morning before dawn, and uh, it was just me in this isolated marsh 50 miles from pavement, and it was the solstice, it was June 21st, and so the sun was rising at 5.30, and there were hundreds of migratory birds in these ponds, so ibises and uh, avocets and various ducks, and uh, the, the sun was lighting up the hills, and then when I could finally see enough, I started looking through the marsh grass, and it turns out it's just crawling with toads. And there were hundreds of toads, and I couldn't step without moving a toad out of the way. It was just incredible, because I was there because we need to save this toad from extinction. But here's this toad. It's just, it's happy. It's having a wonderful life here at Dixie Meadows. And if it weren't for this geothermal power plant, this toad could go on forever just living its its wonderful existence here at Dixie Meadows. And it was just a wonderful morning to connect with the toad. I also got this one really good photograph of the toad, and it's been on the cover of USA Today, and it's been on the Times of London. Like, that photo's been around the world. It was just a very meaningful morning to me, one of the finest mornings I've ever had in the desert, I think. And how much space would you say the habitat is? The total habitat for the toad is less than 400 acres, and that is the global distribution of the Dixie Valley toad. Wow. So that's one medium-sized IKEA parking lot. <laughs> a little larger than that, but uh, but certainly a, a discrete and small area of land. And Dixie Meadows is such an important resource because it's the only substantial surface water for dozens of miles in every direction. You know, while Dixie Meadows is the sole global habitat for the Dixie Valley toad, it's also important surface water for migratory birds, waterfowl, bighorn sheep, pronghorn. They will all get a drink there. It's really a epicenter of biodiversity for the area. So the toad, in being unique to the area, has a possibility of being an umbrella species that offers protection for the other animals that are using the water and enjoying the benefits of the springs there. I mean, we have a... a set of environmental laws, for better or ill, and we think for better because we spend our time using them to save the environment. But we have a set of environmental laws that prioritizes species conservation over ecosystem conservation. And when we heard this ecosystem was threatened, 
we look to how you can protect the ecosystem. And that is there's this endemic species that lives nowhere else on earth and its existence is threatened with extinction. In the Endangered Species Act, it says pretty specifically, this act provides a means to protect the ecosystems upon which endangered species rely. And so that language in the Endangered Species Act kind of connects the two between focusing on saving a species versus saving the ecosystems upon which the species rely. We're not just saving a toad, you know, we're saving uh, the biodiversity of a whole area. And the area is also culturally significant to some native tribes, right? Yeah, the Fallon Paiute Shoshone tribe, whose reservation and home base is in the Lahontan Valley, just to the west, they have an ancestral heritage and connection with Dixie Meadows as their place of healing. And their healers used to live out there, and you would go out for healing. They would use the hot springs and the mud, and that was their place for renewal and also a spiritual element, too. Their creation story brings them to Fox Peak, the high point of the Stillwater Mountains, and this is where they get their unobstructed view of uh, Fox Peak from Dixie Meadows. And so it's, uh, as they described in our lawsuit, which we'll talk about, of course, almost all the springs that were sacred to them have been destroyed. And so Dixie Meadows is in some ways the last untouched, mostly natural spring. And for desert indigenous people, springs were really the epicenter of life. Uh, Water is life, of course. So what proximity would this geothermal plant be to these springs that we're talking about? The geothermal plant would come uh, within a thousand feet of the wetland, so it's practically being built right on top of Dixie Meadows. However, it's not the uh, footprint of the geothermal plant that is the biggest problem. Certainly direct habitat loss of dozens or hundreds of acres for the geothermal facility is of concern, but the, the issue is pumping water. So you need to think a little about how a geothermal power plant works. You, you pump hot water from a geothermal underground aquifer. That water will heat a thermal transfer medium. Uh, usually they use pentane or another uh, type of chemical that can be superheated by the uh, hot water, which then creates steam that spins a turbine. And so you're pumping the hot water, you're using the heat, and then they have all this water that used to be hot. They re-inject that water back into the aquifer. Uh, It's called a closed loop system or a binary system. They end up pumping and re-injecting a huge amount of water, tens of billions of gallons a year when it's fully operational. The amount of water being pumped and recirculated is several orders of magnitude more than the amount of water that comes out of the spring. The spring, of course, comes from that same geothermal aquifer. And so if you think that there's tens of thousands of acre feet pumping and recirculating and just a couple hundred acre feet coming out of the spring, it's almost just loss in the system. And so this huge amount of pumping messes with the pressure and uh, eventually springs adjacent to geothermal power plants dry up. And it turns out when I started looking into it with this project that this happens all the time. And there's this extensive body of literature showing springs either drying up completely or, or changing temperature or geochemistry as a result of geothermal energy development. And it's this kind of hidden crisis. And there's like springs all over Nevada and all over New Zealand and Japan that have dried up when geothermal energy production started. Who knew?
Hi, this is Jeff Hunter. I'm calling from Asheville, North Carolina. And my wife, Tara, and I absolutely love the desert. We spend a lot of time in our favorite national park, Death Valley. We spend time in the surrounding landscape managed by the BLM. Absolutely love those incredible landscapes for a bunch of reasons. It provides an opportunity for solitude, to disconnect from the world and really just revel in the beauty of, of these great landscapes. These places are also really important because of the natural and cultural resources they protect. Uh, you don't see a lot of wildlife. It's not always evident, but the biodiversity is just incredible in these places. Thank goodness that there are people who care about these places and protect them. So walk us through the events that led up to you filing the lawsuit. Presumably this went through environmental assessment process with, would it be the Bureau of Land Management? Is that the lead agency there? Yes, BLM's the agency. So back in 2017, when we first got into this, BLM had proposed the project and we pushed back in uh, regulatory comments. And at the same time, we became so concerned that we filed an Endangered Species Act petition to protect the toad under the Endangered Species Act. And things went quiet for a couple of years. The Endangered Species Act petition proceeded according to the law and it was working its way through the system, although the toad is not yet listed under the ESA. It takes a long time to get a species listed. But the geothermal project seemed to go dormant until the last few months of the Trump administration, things started ramping back up. And I found out through Freedom of Information Act requests that the BLM was shopping around an environmental assessment for the project to agencies who were all very concerned about the project. And so my FOIA request turned up comments from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Nevada Department of Wildlife, the USGS, all telling BLM this project is going to drive this toad extinct. You can't do this. And uh, time went on and the BLM put out the project for comment and went through all the steps that you do to approve a project. Again, things went quiet and then all of a sudden it got approved two days before Thanksgiving. And uh, again, FOIA request, a uh, uh, Freedom of Information Act request we did, turned out that uh, ORMAT, the project developer, went to the governor and went to our congressional delegation in Nevada and uh, the project was approved shortly thereafter. So evidence from the FOIA record of some political interference. But the project was approved, like I said, two days before Thanksgiving, and then it was time for us to leap into action. And so we consulted with the Fallon Paiute Shoshone tribe, and uh, together we filed a lawsuit a couple weeks later, uh, mid-December, in district court to, uh, to try to stop the project. Now, the project developer has a deadline for producing power from this project, so they said they had to start construction at a certain time in order to meet that deadline, and thus were insisting they were going to start construction on January 6th lawsuit be damned. And as a result, we had to move for preliminary injunction, which is your most sort of extreme <laughs> time-sensitive approach you can do in a lawsuit to try to literally stop the bulldozers. You know, that was a, a big lift on, on the part of our attorneys to get all that done right before Christmas. But uh, the project developer was proceeding regardless of concerns from environmentalists or the tribe. So we sort of had no choice but to engage at that level with this litigation. From my understanding, there's uh, a push to meet a renewable energy quota. And that's part of what this plant would accomplish. And I find that kind of a hard thing to reconcile, like, oh, let's just make this toad extinct so we can meet renewable energy goals. Well, renewable energy quotas tend to be agnostic about the technology used to get there, nor the environmental impacts thereof. They basically say you need to produce carbon-free electricity and, and get there however you see fit. Where does this go from here? What are your chances of winning a lawsuit? 
Yeah, so we won a preliminary injunction for 90 days on, on the 4th, so last Tuesday, and uh, stopped the bulldozers with 48 hours to go until construction was going to start. It was a pretty dramatic week in that way. That's an awesome birthday present for me, by the way. Thank you. Oh, was that your birthday? Yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday. Uh, so, you know, the judge gave a relatively short injunction. The idea being that if someone, if one wanted a longer injunction, one could appeal to the Ninth Circuit. The preliminary injunction was based on immediate irreparable harm. So the actual effects of construction. It's important to point out that what we talked earlier about pumping the water, re-injecting it is going to dry up the springs. That actually doesn't happen until the plant is constructed and the pumps get turned on. So we essentially have not yet had the argument about the science on the water. We've only talked about the construction impacts so far in court. Mm -hmm. So when we finally hear this case on the merits about the overall impacts of the project, I'm really looking forward to that, actually, because our science is strong. We have all these agencies, the documents we got in FOIA where they're corroborating exactly what our hydrologist is saying, BLM science is bunk. And so I'm really looking forward to this case being heard on the merits, because not only do I think we're going to win and stop this project dead in its tracks, but I think if we do win, it's going to force BLM to start looking at these issues when they permit geothermal projects. So this was something I really uncovered, you know, through this work was that BLM ignores this stuff all the time. Like basically every geothermal energy project that's ever been permitted, BLM has ignored impacts to adjacent surface water resources. And so if we win, we might be able to change the way geothermal is permitted. That doesn't mean stopping every geothermal power plant in the West, but it does mean that they'll at least analyze whether or not they're going to drive species extinct and whether or not there needs to be mitigation or whether or not it's the appropriate place to build at all. So there, there could mm -hmm. be uh, precedent-setting ramifications from this case if we make it to the merits and if we, if we prevail. Is there a right place for geothermal? Do you see a sustainable future for geothermal if it's done well? Well, I think the first thing is geothermal should not be sited near hot springs. Mm -hmm. And that's where they want to put it because the hot spring is indicative of a resource. But geothermal dries up hot springs. And if it's important to us to maintain desert water sources, to maintain biodiversity, then geothermal shouldn't go there, period. Now, there are what's called blind resources, which means resources that do not have surface expression. And they're detected through various geologic testing methods. And uh, yeah, so blind resources should be theoretically okay to develop. Now, there's always the impacts of actually the industrial infrastructure. And it turns out the blind resource that Armat loves to point to, McGinnis Hills Project in central Nevada, happened to be in the middle of the best sage-grouse habitat in the state, mm. and 10 leks winked out of existence uh, right after they started production there, because uh, uh, geothermal energy is quite noisy, it turns out. Who knew? Okay, wait a minute. It's time to hit the desert dictionary. A lek, spelled L-E-K, is a breeding strategy engaged in by a number of species, including sage-grouse. Sage-grouse leks are generally open areas adjacent to dense clumps of sagebrush, and the same lek may be used by grouse for decades. Each spring, the males congregate and perform a strutting display. Each male puffs up large air sacs on his chest, and the male struts around with his tail feathers splayed out and air sacs puffed up. Females watch these displays and eventually select the most attractive males to mate with. Only a few selected males do most of the breeding. In one case, biologists observed a male sage-grouse mating with 37 different females in a period of 37 minutes. 
Sage grouse are a vulnerable species threatened by grazing, mining, wildfire, and other kinds of habitat destruction. So the loss of a lek is a big deal. So, you know, there are constraints on where we can put geothermal sustainably. There are probably Goldilocks places, blind resources where there's not desert tortoises or, or greater sage grouse. Those places probably do exist. It, it's just like any other energy source. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Right. And I'm not sure we should bank our future on geothermal energy being our savior because it seems like there's a lot of impacts from it. And those places where it can be sustainably developed may be somewhat limited. So what can people who are listening do to support the nixing of the project? Yeah, I mean, we're deep in litigation right now. I think in general, the Center for Biological Diversity has its legitimacy because we have 1.7 million members and supporters across the country. And if your listeners aren't one, then you should become one um, because that's part of how we fund these lawsuits, but also where we get our legitimacy and power from is that we have huge amounts of people who believe in preserving biodiversity that stand with us. And becoming a member and donating 25 bucks or whatever seems like a token gesture, but uh, it actually actually makes a difference when there's tens or hundreds of thousands of people doing it. And the other thing I would say is clicktivism works. So once you sign up for the Center for Biological Diversity's mailing list, you'll get lots of action alerts where you click five times and it sends an email to whoever, BLM or whoever the villain of the week is. And it seems like, again, like, oh, that that's not meaningful, you know, that's just clicking a couple times. But actually, it gives folks like me uh, a tool to use in in our campaigns. If we get 25,000 people signing uh, a letter to BLM saying, don't make a toad go extinct, uh, that's a tool we then have and we can use. And uh, it makes a very powerful statement that a lot of people care about these issues. So clicktivism actually works. It actually is meaningful, even if it doesn't seem meaningful, because it can be used to magnify the impact of activism. And the center's website address is? Biologicaldiversity.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you here. All right. Thanks. This episode of 90 Miles from Needles was produced by Alicia Pike and Chris Clark. Editing by Chris. Thanks to Patrick Donnelly for the interview. To find out more about the Dixie Valley Toad, visit biologicaldiversity.org. Podcast artwork by the clever Martine Mancha. Intro and outro music is by Brightside Studio. Other music by Slipstream. Follow us on Twitter at at 90MI from Needles and on Facebook at facebook.com slash 90 miles from Needles. Find us at 90milesfromneedles.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Brandon Braun, Travis Puglisi, and Patch Spine Center. Join them and support this podcast by visiting us at 90milesfromneedles.com slash Patreon and making a monthly pledge of as little as five bucks. Crucial support for this podcast came from Tad Coffin and Laura Roselle. All characters on this podcast are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies, and the deep trees, the mountains, and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. I'm Bouse Parker. See y'all next time.